Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Cure, cannabis used for research and education. The medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion, sports, trauma, and many other orthopedic injuries, as well as skin disorders, mental disorders, cancer, and osteoporosis, to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost-effective, but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education. Welcome to On The Verge. Today's special guest, longtime friend, fellow rocker, loves a little bit of wine, played college golf. He checks every box here on The Verge. The founding member of Elevation. Brian Hoppies. Brian, how are you, buddy? I'm doing great. It's great to be here, Virgil. Elevation Search Solutions, my friend. You have figured out a way to be an entrepreneur while being in the human resources side of business. Where did that, because I don't, like, I love that, because usually you see HR people, they're just, they know where their line ends, which is at the top of a corporate ladder, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yep. And you created a business around your expertise which i find remarkable in if it's not the hottest city in the united states is in the top five for Mm -hmm. sure how did the whole elevation search solutions come to you in that way because i know that you've worked at a couple of different companies prior to that and what's been the the key for you that made it so successful yeah so great point about the the human resources field you know i started in corporate hr and that's where i met your wife and Mm -hmm. And my dad had been in HR, and I had a really great opportunity the first almost 10 years of my corporate career to really see all the different sides of, of, of human resources. Hmm. And it, two of the three stops, recruiting was something I was doing a lot of in those companies because they were scaling pretty rapidly and just found a, a love of that. It just fit my personality. I think there was a, a sales element of it. You're trying to get a candidate to come to your company, you're trying to sell your hiring manager on why they should talk to this candidate. It just fit the way that I, you know, like to work. And, and so I think in, in some ways, uh, you know, it had an entrepreneurial element of it. Mm-hmm. And what added to that was to those three stops, I got to a chance to build 
the human resources department from the ground up. Oh wow! In those in those companies, one was you know when I met your wife uh, at EFT Source, and so I think there was an element you know of entrepreneurship there. So my last corporate stop, you know, Rachel had heard me talk about recruiting. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. And she literally said one day, "Why don't you start your own business?" And that was 12 years ago, yeah. and I never looked back. And so when she gave me that stamp, sort of stamp of approval and pushed me off the ledge, she's more of a risk taker than I am. I was more conservative mm. uh, by nature then. I guess mm. I'm more of a risk taker now. You know, I've really never looked back. So I built my first recruiting company called Appizant in the office of my home in East Nashville, scaled that for a few years. It was bought by a larger recruiting firm. I weathered the Great Recession mm-hmm. d- during that. Uh, then I took a, took a break after scaling that business or growing that business for a while. And then when we got back from living, living in France, mm-hmm. which um, we may get into in a little bit sure, here, absolutely. a couple of angel investors that, that I have known over the years approached me and said, you know, Hey, we know about you, we know what you've done. Would you be interested in, in building another human resource or another recruiting firm? Uh, let's call it Elevation going to give you the freedom, give you some ownership, go do it. And I said, yeah. So that was six and a half years, almost seven years uh, later. Wow. Time flies. Time flies. <laughs> I can get long-winded, Virgil, so, so slow, <laughs> slow me down. Well, I, I, I love that. <laughs> you know, so obviously well, there are some things that we have no control over. You didn't have any control over Nashville being one of the hottest cities no. in the in the world. And people come into Nashville and Tennessee anyway because there's it's a no-income tax state mm-hmm. and it's a safe haven for big business, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Right place at the right time, but everybody has That's opportunities. Right. It's those who kick the door in when it opens are the ones that make it. What's the what's it like out there in Nashville right now on the job search front or, or for what it is that it is that you're doing? Yes, I think you're seeing you know, all of these national news reports of a, you know, a high unemployment and, you know, what's happened with the pandemic. And, and those things are true. Mm-hmm. I think like the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, Nashville was sort of insulated in a way from some of the pain that other areas of the, of the country felt. You know, mm-hmm. we have strong health care, you know, multi-billion dollar industry here, mm-hmm. entertainment, um, a lot of the, you know, quality of life position in the country where we are, where we can get to places around, um, you know, so, you know, a great tech scene now. Yeah. Uh, you know, people are moving here from this Los like Angeles. Sil- Silicon Valley East you is what it's it. basically called. Yeah, it's happening. And, um, you know, so a lot of CEOs that we talk to, because they're reading what they're reading, think that, you know, these top tier candidates are just on trees for the picking. And that's not necessarily true in our region. Yeah. I think the market is not as tight as it was pre-pandemic, but it, it, it it's not a, you know, a, a, you know, I think it's still in some way a candidate's market. Is that right? I, I, I do think so. Yeah. And I think it's quickly getting to that, to that point here in, in this region. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens when the pandemic kind of dies off a little bit. I think that we're not too far away from. I don't want to use the word relative normalcy, but we're going to be heading back here probably by early summer to, let's say, 60 to 70% of what we would consider Mm -hmm. pre-pandemic life. Mm -hmm. Um, It's going to be fascinating to see how the city takes off 
because of my understanding, I had a great interview recently with Marty Dickens, who was a major uh, impetus to the convention center. Mm -hmm. He's a big time player in the, in the city. He says that, man, the hotels have weathered the storm, mm -hmm. you know, very well, thank goodness. And it's about ready to explode here. And I get that sensation too, because there's all of these companies from California and New York that are just being taxed out the wazoo. It just doesn't make any sense for them to stay where they are. Mm -hmm. And they're moving to Texas, Florida, and Tennessee. A lot of them are in Vegas as well. But it's going to be very fascinating to see. I would imagine that uh, elevation is going to continue to thrive in that market, wouldn't you say? I absolutely would say so, yeah. I mean, in addition to working here in Middle Tennessee, we are working all over the country and have since mm -hmm. the start of, of Elevation. But our, you know, our roots are here, and I'm a native, and I believe in this town. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's why Rachel and I decided to, to stay here and, and be a part of this community, because we saw all the signs, you know, that have been, you know, showing themselves, what, now for 15 yeah. years, you know, somewhere P around there. Plus or minus, yeah. yeah. And, and um, you know... Uh, hearing, and I don't want to get too political, but hearing, you know, hearing that that the CMA Fest was canceled yesterday, you kind of go, "Oh, really?" Because you, you you know the hotels and you know, you know the Visitors Convention Bureau, they need you know that that and that 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 hurts. Oh, I don't yeah. know who was behind making those decisions. I'm sure they didn't go didn't go without come without a lot of forethought and oh, looking yeah. at scenarios, and, you know, and things like that. But um, you know, Nashville will bounce back, I believe, and I think it, it will bounce back and be even bigger than, you know, than what it was. Will it look different? Maybe. Mm -hmm. Will it be better? Possibly. Will it be worse for a while? I, we don't know. You know, I think that's been one of the hard things about this pandemic is that it's hard to predict. Yeah. It's hard to plan. Because once you do, it's a lot of start and stops. Yeah, push me, you know? pull me. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, it feels like based on what I read and people I talk to and just catching up with you here a few minutes before this, you know, podcast that, you know, we are on the back end of this and Nashville or Middle Tennessee as a region has put things in place that really position us well for a, a, a bounce back. Mm -hmm. And um, I think you're already starting to see that. Here's an example. The Nashville Post sent me a, a survey. I guess they sent it to some CEOs around the, the city, you know, about, you know, you know, uh, have you left your office space or are you going to go back to your office space are you going to hire more people or lay off more people and there were about 200 responses so far when i did it yesterday and mostly all that i saw were we're going back to the office we're hiring more people and it was all this very positive data that mm -hmm. you got to see real time in this survey that i that i thought was oh, really wow. eye-opening mm -hmm. and you know i no, here uh, over the the post is doing some great work and sent that out to some you know some leaders that know yeah. what's going on and can can give him an idea and the post an idea and the city an idea of what what we're in for. Yeah, for sure. What's well, interesting, obviously, with having Rachel on uh, recently as well, and knowing how much travel has been a a, like a staple of y'all's life. How has traveling to different countries? made you better at HR and what it is that you're oh. doing here? So, <laughs> the, the, I'll try to be short on this too, but you know, growing up in, in Nashville, going to a private school, I was around a lot of the same kind of people from the same place, even going to Lipscomb mm -hmm. you know, for 20 years of my life. We traveled around domestically, didn't do, didn't do any international travel 
you know, so I mean, my eyes were open to some extent, but thanks to Rachel mm-hmm. and her experience, you know, over in Europe in college. And then when we honeymooned, she said, let's go to Paris. That was my first time to go to Europe. Then when we decided to move to France, uh, after we bought an apartment over there, um, I tell people this all the time. We, we worked over there for a UK-based um, luxury villa holiday to sort of company. And the first day I walked in there, I met more people from around the world in a day than I had met in my entire life. Wow. I was in my late 30s. How about that? So, like, immediately, like, you start to learn about their perspective and how different it is from yours and their backgrounds and their culture and their heritage and their 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 worldview. And it ch- if you're open to being open to that, mm-hmm. it will change your life and oh, change yeah. it fast. It changed my life. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think about that time. Mm-hmm. And we're already putting some plans together once the world starts to open up and we're hearing... You know, maybe by July, August, September, mm-hmm. Europe is going to open its doors again. We're going to get over there as fast as we can and sort of survey what's going on and see if we can't spend a little bit of time over there e- each year, um, awesome. especially with the, you know, the, the business that Rachel's doing. But, you know, in terms of being an entrepreneur, it just, you know, um, you know the, the more ways you can look at something, you know, and, and the more perspectives you can have, you know, about where people are coming from, I think it helps. it helps you you know, build and it helps you work with different types of people. And, um, it, it, it literally changed my life. Yeah. And the travel does that. Once again, you have to be open. You have to have the right, Yeah, it doesn't, it's not a very narrow mindset. You'd have to be open, but you could be open in a variety of different ways to take, cause there's a lot to take in. There's not just the people, but there's the place, right? you know, and then there's, there's the food, and there's all the, all the little subtle nuances of everyday life at wherever it is that you are that sometimes we lose on a vacation, which is what I find interesting right. about what what Rachel and y'all are doing, which mm-hmm. is it's it's not just your normal seven-day sit at the beach, sip on a Mai Tai, and this is more of a deep dive into, I almost call it sport travel, which is your, your, it's something you love so much yeah. that it's it's something that you're a putting into your life with meaning and energy, and it's not a all-inclusive sit at the beach, sit by the pool, have some Mai Tais, and it's a constant walk between your hotel room and the beach and maybe a, you know, a restaurant or the bar scene mm-hmm. at night. You know, it's, It can get kind of monotonous, but you mm-hmm. guys are thinking of it in a much bigger, richer scales, richer as in deeper meaning. Yeah. Um, was, what would you say that it started because you experienced that and you want to pass that experience on, or you feel like there's that much interest in that and it's an untapped market? I think both. Mm. Um, you know, self, selfishly, you know, we love that time. Yeah. And, and you know, Rachel having uh, been a part of an immersion program through the University of Tennessee in the late 90s, there in Nice in the south of France, and then her bringing me to Paris and then us going back to Nice to celebrate a health milestone for her and taking my mom and dad and, mm-hmm. and us really taking that immersion, you know, outlook on that vacation and doing some, um, experience based sort of, uh, tours mm-hmm. and experiences and living in a, in an apartment versus a hotel, 
in a place where locals live and just be, you know sort of living like a local is, yeah. what, is what we call it. Yeah, we we loved it so much and still do. You know that that we want to share that with other people. Now you can stay in hotels, and we you know when we're going to travel here in the fall, we're going to stay in some hotels. But there's ways you can stay in hotels and also immer- you know become Im- immersed in that culture with you know, the types of things that you do, which mm-hmm. is different than, like you say, just sitting on a beach and relaxing. Yeah. And there are times for those types of behavior or vacations. Sometimes you need that. Yeah. You've been going, 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 and you need to just sit and be, mm-hmm. you know. But um, I think we tend to be drawn more towards let's go to a place, let's just pour ourselves into it. Let's, yeah, maybe look at some of the sites, but... Let's just walk. Yeah. Just walk and look and listen and mm. smell. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think that maybe as Americans, we think vacation should be one way, and that's not wrong. Yeah. But there's other ways too, and I think we want to open those doors to some, you know, to some people that maybe haven't experienced that before or have experienced it, but maybe we're going to help them experience it in a different, different way. way. I'm very excited yeah. about what is ahead very excited what's so cool to be doing something that's a passion yeah you know it's the possibly my greatest gift for for me you know i get a chance to coach a sport that i love i get a chance to interview really cool people (laughs) that i care about and hear their story and learn from get a chance to write books with a former superstar basketball player yeah great friend of yours as well yeah absolutely it's like everything that i do i recognize the value of a passion because I cannot imagine what it, what it's like to work at something you absolutely rue doing, just to make it, just to make a living. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty harsh thing. Well, I think we watched a lot of our parents. Yeah, do that. Maybe do that. That generation, you know, they were loyal mm-hmm. company men and women, whether they liked it or not. Yeah. Twenty years later, you're going, whoa. <laughs> That's right. What happened? That's right. It's interesting because your life has been evolved around really some. The cooler things in life, like so. I would be interested now. Like you've played college golf at Lipscomb, right? Yeah. And golf has a very unique way of allowing us inside people's lives without them realizing we're inside people's lives. And you get once again, you get a little bit of an HR head start because of all of the time you've spent with people competing, trying to win. You've seen people try to win fair. You've people seen people try to win not so fair. Mm-hmm. And you start to see traits in people, and you can start to pattern it. And I was wondering, do you feel like, how much do you feel like your golf experience has also played a huge role in your ability to read people, be able to place people in the right jobs, and also just navigate life to the richest and fullest extent that we can? I think it would be hard for me to put into words how the game of golf has affected me and I'm grateful mm. to my father for introducing me to the game. I mean, I can remember walking up the fairway at number one, holding his hand. No, oh, yeah. I was so young. That's so great. And uh, that's probably one of my earliest memories. memories. Really, carrying my little bag and my Chichi Rodriguez driver. <laughs> <laughs> that's so. Good. And the kind of people that I got to meet through the game yeah it's probably a part of of that and i haven't thought a lot about this Mm -hmm. so i appreciate the question because you know you you meet you met all kinds of people from different backgrounds Mm -hmm. but people that loved a a game that you know golf's not just about the game that's right you know uh 
It's got all the feels, it's got all the smells, and it's got yeah. it's really hard. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> and it's it's social yeah. in, in some way, sort yeah. of to your point. You know, I think about as an adult, this this group of guys that we played every Saturday at Old Hickory and just the conversations that we had. Yeah. You know, I think about you know, the games that you and I played with our group of friends. Yeah. And, and and you know, I think in a way, you know, that did help me be better in my job and human resources just because I think, you know, the, the game lent itself to some conversation mm. and, and watching people and how they competed and how they played and how they you know, dealt with the bad shot. I mean, it's, it, I'm sure there are books written about the psychological aspect of golf and how it can be a, you know, a positive thing and bleed sure. and carry over into other aspects of your life. But I mean, that game, I mean, that game has, benefited me i've got more, way more out of that than you know yeah uh, that i deserve and and you know early on when i was young you know playing golf and being a, a business professional you know i'd go out there fresh out of playing college golf and hitting it pretty good yeah and some you know i remember being threatened by <laughs> bill dinker <laughs> i'm gonna fire you if you beat me today uh, and okay. i beat him he didn't fire me. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, uh, I think he got a kick in some way, and I'm going. I'm on a tangent here, but I, I think he got a kick in some way of bringing me out, to, you know, to Hillwood, and then we, we'd travel, and he'd take me with him to do uh, client golf because I played good, and I was easy to. It was I could talk to people. I was young, and yep. I had fun with it, and but I was competitive, and you know, just. And Dinker's so a huge, such a unique bird too, <laughs> yeah. because you know he loves golf, yeah, but he he also. And he's gotten a lot better than he was oh, in really? those days. You know, he's a, yeah. he's an honest eleven. Oh, 12, that's great, right? Yeah. But like, I got so many great stories about Dinker. But I mean, <laughs> just knowing like how like how much it matters to him. Like he took me on a couple of his you know VIP deals yeah. early on, um, and I had to go down there and help you know help a couple of important people. To yeah. The honors I went down and played mm-hmm. with him oh, there, yeah. and I mm-hmm. went somewhere else with him too. I can't remember where. But such a unique guy, but he, he, he was very self-conscious about not being a very good golfer. Mm-hmm. So he'd like to, th- you know, th- oh, yeah, he'd like give, you, give you a little something, something yeah. over it. But at the end of the day, he, he's a really good, really good man. Yeah, I had lunch he, with him a couple of years ago, and it was literally, I know it was so cliche, but it was like, <laughs> a, a day hadn't passed. That's right. And we laughed. You know, he's got that sense of humor. Oh, where, yeah. You know, I, I think about, he took me to this golf course outside of Boston on a client trip near Walden Pond one time. And I thought, I was pinching myself. Like, where am I? And uh, yep. at the best time. Anyway, good. those are good memories. And that, I mean, we're getting into 20, 25 years. I know it. Time flies when you're having fun, oh, man. Goodness. Again, yeah. That's hard to believe. <laughs> it's hard to believe. So, now, like... And, and for you listeners out there, we have not even yet scratched the entire surface of all the cool things that Brian has done. So now we get this thing called Weatherspoon. I mean, I meet you for the first time, and it's like, hey, you know, Brian's got a rock band. I'm like, no, he doesn't. No, no, he's playing a rock band for a long time. It's called Weatherspoon. I'm like, let me see it. So they get a, I get the CD. I'm like, huh, how about a CD? Let's do it. And it was really good. And I was like, all right. And then I went to see you. I think it was at Twelfth and Porter. Yeah, Twelfth and Porter. R.I.P. Twelfth and Porter. I think. I hope not. Maybe uh, they'll bring it back. Hopefully, it's one of the best stages, no doubt, in Nashville. And that was the first time I saw you live. I was like, now that was phenomenal. 
what were your musical, like where did that music piece come from in your life? And rock and roll, man, love it. And I, I appreciate that. I, um, and for the record, the, the four of us guys are still great friends, and mm-hmm. three of the four of us live within a mile of each other. Oh, really? And we see each other. Through the pandemic, we saw each other quite often because we needed to be close to people we knew and mm-hmm. tr- trusted, and, and so we got a little creative during that time and got a little nostalgic, and there are a lot of concerts that were recorded that I had not heard before, so... I, oh, I got wow. a chance to sort of step back, but gosh, um, didn't really come from a musical family or don't come from a musical family. Um, my dad loved music, so played it in the house a lot. I remember Elvis mm-hmm. a lot and just the feeling it gave me when I heard uh, some of some of his music. Um, took piano lessons pretty early at the, at the urging of my mom, took some guitar lessons. It was always something, you know. You, I probably hear musicians say all the time, you, you just it's, you feel it. It's yeah. a part of you know who you are, and you know love to sing. That probably was the first thing I knew that I felt like I was I was pretty you know good at. And in my formative years, you know um, the grunge era. Gosh, you and I could talk for a million oh, hours oh, no. about this. I mean, there were just. Like the Lenny Kravitz Mama Said album and the Black Crows Southern Harmony Musical Companion, yeah. uh, you know, two big ones, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. I mean, those are three that really were where I'd get in my car because I was in my car a lot more. And I'd put my tape in. Oh, yeah. And I would just sing and sing, and it made me feel so good. And so, you know, in high school, I knew these guys. And, um, you know, I knew that they played music, and I'd go out and they'd play little, you know, shows around town, mm-hmm. and I just wanted to be up there so bad. And so finally, when I was a freshman in college, I got the the courage to ask one of them, "Hey, could I come down one night when y'all practice? I'd really just like to sing a little bit." I think they thought I was joking, huh. and I kept bothering them. I might, you know, persistence is something I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> it's served me well in my life, and it's sometimes not served well, me. As all well. strengths, all strengths are weaknesses at some point, you yeah. know. That's so and uh, I remember Justin Lowe, our drummer, uh, who he lived in my neighborhood, uh, said, "Why don't you come on down Sunday? Whatever it was, Sunday was practice night." And I came down, and we did some cover songs. And man, it was like I was transported to like another universe. It just fit wow. like a puzzle piece, and they felt it too. That was the fall of 1994. Huh. And uh, we did it pretty religiously for at least 15 years. And yeah. we're still doing it lightly and recording 20 years into it. Really? So, That's great. Yeah. What's it like? Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I'm so fascinated by it because in some ways, I love music so much. I, I, don't, ha- I don't have much. I wouldn't say that I have much of a talent. I have a, maybe a Hall of Fame ear. <laughs> there you go. But a radically rookie voice and, and musical talent. But uh, what's it like stepping up to the microphone and full of, a full crowd at you know 12th and Porter? What's it like? It has to be like the most bizarrely unique rush that there is. It, it, it absolutely is. And and I love seeing the people's faces. I can only imagine like some of the bigger artists. Like you don't think they can see you. They can see you. Now, if you're back in the nosebleeds, you know, they, can, mm-hmm. they can't see you. But they can see your faces. And seeing like 
the first note, you know, the first cymbal crash, the first whatever, uh-huh. something clicks, and you just go into this place, yeah. and you're rehearsed, you're, you're ready, you're prepared, and you just let it take over you. And um, yeah, I frankly miss it. I bet. A, a lot, but it is a feeling that is just a joy, and um, it's cathartic. It comes cathartic. out of your soul. Oh, there's so much healing in it. It's, um, um, I mean, it it, it 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 allows you to I don't know speak to to people in a mm. different way. Yeah. Um, you know. It, it, I really during the pandemic I watched the was it Bohemian Rhapsody is that what it was called mm-hmm. the the uh, about Freddie Mercury and McQueen yeah. and watched that on a on a actually on a plane when Rachel and I were uh, taking it one of those sit on the beach trips actually mm-hmm. a couple of years ago and you know I've known Queen my whole life and and really I liked them but when I saw that movie I, I would hope that that is as accurate as it can be because it really it struck was very me. good the yeah. story really struck me and so during the pandemic. I would go and watch the the original Live Aid performance, uh, knowing all of the history behind it now. Yeah. And it, you could see Freddie Mercury, and you could see the others too. They, mm-hmm. were, they were feeling it. I mean, you knew the story, you know. He didn't know if he could get up there and sing that day. He didn't know if he could hit the notes anymore like Freddie Mercury used to do. Yeah. By God, he did. Oh, yeah. And did it better than he ever, ever did, did probably. And that that 20-minute concert for me so far has probably been the best I've ever seen and we were at a dinner party last year and some we did this little game like if you if you could do anything you know what would what would it what would it be and I said to stand on that stage at Wembley Stadium like Freddie Mercury did and for 20 minutes give that crowd and the people listening on the radio or whatever everything I had could you imagine that leave it oh I couldn't imagine it because, I mean, that, that was an unbelievable event. You know, like, so Guns N' Roses played close to the end, and then they played November Rain with Elton John. <laughs> and it was like 190,000 yeah. people. It was unbelievable. unbelievable. I can't imagine what it's like. Because like, that, to me, I've asked that question. I've been very fortunate to get some really cool yeah. artists on here. And they all say something different. It mm-hmm. all, it all, it's all, like, pinch me stuff. Absolutely. But, like, you know, I recently did one with rapper Jelly Roll. He's from Antioch, yeah. right? So he's... Mm-hmm super guy and you know he sings songs about his own pain and he's he's mm-hmm. used his music now as not only to help himself but to help others that's his yeah. main so he, he says man so sometimes I'm singing and I'm just looking at this boy in the front row and I know he's got something to tell me but I I can't because I can't talk to everybody right. I almost can't talk to him mm-hmm. and it's so painful because I know he's got something he needs to tell Jelly you know he's, yeah. he, and I'm just like I can't imagine what it was like to be like Robert Plant in 1970 or what it was like to be Axl Rose in 86 yeah, right. or Vetter in 93 oh. or Taylor Swift or Garth Brooks yeah. at any particular moment. Right. Like you, you just walk out and people go bananas and you haven't even started yet. Right. That has to be so intoxicating that it's, it's easy to see how for every superstar that makes it out, there's a Jimi Hendrix, a Kurt Cobain, a Janis Joplin. Great point. It can be hard to handle, I think, and I've and I have only experienced at, at the smallest of levels. Yeah. And I have often thought, like, you know, 
I think we were close as Weatherspoon. We had some things. You we were, were polished, we right? Were you were really close. good. And, but I've often wondered to myself, if we got a taste of that, would I be who I am today? Could, could I have... Not, and I don't want to presume... Mm-hmm. Anything. Anything. Yeah. That I'm even... Have the talent at that level to have done that? Would that have been something the four of us would have liked? Would we have enjoyed the touring? Would we have enjoyed being away from our families? Would we have even had families? Could we have handled the intoxicating feeling of hundred thousand people yeah. screaming and wanting more of you? I don't. I don't, I don't know. And, and in some ways, I'm, I'm maybe glad I never got a chance to find. Out, interesting. You know, that's a, that's an interesting out. point. Because yeah. it's scary. I mean, it, it, it comes with. It, it, you know, I don't know what to expect. It's a tremendous, to, tremendous responsibility. It, it is. It is tremendous responsibility because not you. You don't have many people saying no to you. Right. Everything seems too easy. Everything's going right. Yeah. Because everybody's saying yes. Right. You know, and at some point, nothing is that easy, and there's always a price to pay. Yeah. And I just find it so fascinating to watch the ones that make it. And they get to be the sounding board now. Absolutely. You know, so like, if you, if you think of it to our era, right, essentially, and I don't know if you can call Tool in this group, but it, there's only Eddie Vedder and Maynard Keenan left. Yeah. Lane Staley, yep. gone. Cornell, gone. The, Cobain. The, Cobain, gone. Uh, Wyland, gone. Yep. All of these, the super big grunge era singers. They've all died. Yep. So now the only get to listen to Eddie Vedder, who's certainly much closer in the in that world than Maynard is, because he they grew up in Seattle, they were all together. Yeah. That that's Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Nirvana mm-hmm. thing all blew up at the exact same time. Yep. You know, to see like what they go through, what they've seen, and like how Eddie's you know, he's got depression, but he's figured out how to navigate it mm-hmm. at a, in a healthier Wait, but then you see how like other people died, like Cornell and the guy from Lincoln Park, Chester yeah. Benefield. They died while changing medications yeah. because they were they're so they were struggling so badly. They were changing medications, and the cocktail of the two together spiraled them out of control. Man, you want to talk about something that scares me is mental health, and like two of the greatest Same. voices trying to do the right things, right die well doing so and not doing it the way we've put rock stars in. They didn't like shoot themselves or purposely want to die. Right. They were trying to get healthy and right. died. Man, it breaks my heart for those people that witness that kind of struggle that we never get a chance to see. Right. And then somebody that's so big to so many people, like a Chris Cornell or Elaine Staley or, well, I mean, devastating to hear the news and then you start to Immediately, like at first, because it took a while for the facts to come out that they were both not, that wasn't like they were trying yeah. to kill themselves. So it was just they were getting crossed up on the meds and the meds whacked them. Yep. Um, I can't imagine what that's like because you've been on a ride that's so private because this guy's life is so public. Mm-hmm. And then we get caught off guard and immediately you're like, Jim Morrison found he probably was probably in a bathtub, you know, drugged up. Nope. And, and in some ways it's, it's, it's refreshing to know that they were trying to, to do the right things. Yeah. But it's just so sad that we still live in a world where mental health, mental wellness, mental illness is such a stigma that people yeah. are still afraid to talk about it. Right. 
And it just drives me insane because in, in all actuality, what's the difference between your mental health and your physical health? If, if, if it's not clicking, it's a bad situation for you. Yeah. I just, I mean, I, I've tried like my best to make sure maybe four to six uh, episodes here are about the people that I know that are involved in making people's lives better that are struggling. And so mm-hmm. many people are hiding the struggle because they think that it's a, it's shameful to talk right. about. So it's really important. To me. Well, and I think you make some great points. And I, so I have, I have some experience, not personally, but someone close to me of, of you know, that, you know, you talk about Chris Cornell and you talk about Chester from Lincoln Park, you know, and, and the, the meds being off that they're, um, Sure, it's a science, but that some of that needs to improve Ooh. in our medical community because I don't know if the average person fully understands some of the power of some of these medications that are prescribed. Mm-hmm. If you do not um, wean is the only word I can think of yeah. right now, but it, it, transition off of them or ch- properly, it can, they can it can be bad. Absolutely, and um, you know, uh, I hate to say maybe it takes some examples like this to open some eyes um but it but it may mm-hmm. and, and that, that these are just two examples of many many examples of, of something like this i remember a, a guy i worked with very young had a very similar situation not his fault got some mm. you know medication either the cocktail wasn't right yeah. and, and and it and it took his life you know sadly um but i do think that you know, you think about when we were, you know, in high school, even in our in our 20s, you, nobody talked about behavioral health. I mean, if you were a guy and you said, I struggle with some anxiety, you'd, ne- ne- you'd never, never say that. Never. And so, you know, w- one that comes to mind, Carson Daly, I don't know him a lot or watch him a lot, mm-hmm. but I think he was one that has come out to say, I-, I struggle with anxiety. You know, I think we need more people like that, you know, depression or whatever, yeah. to be able to talk about it. Because that in itself helps you overcome those things when you feel like you don't have to hide it. You can just talk about it. And I think that hopefully we're going to be in an, in an age going forward between now and the end of our lives where there's not as much of a stigma yeah. attached to it. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's yeah. my hope because I think that's a part of healing. I really yeah, do. Yeah, 100%. Like to me, and I don't know this to be true, so I'm, uh, I'm throwing this out. I'm not saying that this is the facts. I'm just saying that it's important. Tiger Woods... Has just been in another serious yeah. car accident. Okay, the first car accident that he was in, he was under a mm-hmm. lot. He was under the influence of a lot of yeah. painkillers and mm-hmm. a lot of things to, to help him sleep. So he struggles with an enormous amount of pain. If you watch the interview that he had on Sunday on CBS at the at Riviera, because mm-hmm. he's the he's the tournament. Host, I saw just a snippet of it. He was no way that he wasn't. Suffer. I mean, he was. He was. He took pain medication for. I can't believe that he's not. I don't know it because I wasn't there. But you, I know what it looks like when somebody is on pain meds. He had some bags under his eyes or something. He was doing it with Jim Nance. Yeah, yeah, it was with Nance and Fowler. Yeah, it didn't look good. You're exactly yeah. right. You're now, exactly. I picked up on that. That does not mean that that's related to this car accident. So I'm not implying that mm-hmm. it is. But what I am saying is this: the the opioid crisis in this country is in an epic proportion. It's so sad and so out of control. Yep. If there is a person who could step up in front of a microphone and demand change and get it, it's Tiger Woods. Mm-hmm. And he has a very interesting and compelling story. Mm-hmm. 
he has had all of these back surgeries and the nerve damage and the nerve pain that he had. I've had like a sliver of what he's had mm-hmm. in my L5 S1 joint, uh, like the, the structure of my spine. It's a mm-hmm. classic golf injury. Mm-hmm. It is excruciating. Mm-hmm. And if I had it at two out of 10 and he had it at nine out of 10, I can't even fathom. And he's had it over a year, like every day for over a year of electrocuting shutdown pain. Mm-hmm. He even tried to play golf through, which is like unbelievable. Yeah. He's a machine. But he took these meds to stop hurting after surgery and he literally couldn't stop. And then you listen, I listened to a story that Ensworth had a parent community uh, gentleman come on last night and he, you know, a drug addict was, had a, got in a, in an accident, cut his hand really bad and ended up getting an, a staph infection in his arm and they gave him pain medication like fentanyl for crying yeah, out loud. Yeah. And his life nearly ended. And he was just cruising along, has an infection, goes to the doctor. Next thing you know, he's almost dead and addicted to something that's so dangerous. I'm like, we need somebody. Hopefully they don't like, hopefully it doesn't take Tiger dying from it for it to be a deal. But if he was able to stand up in front of the microphone and say, we got to do something because I've almost killed myself once, maybe maybe twice, but I mean, at the end of the day, I've almost killed myself and others, and we, there's no recourse for these companies to just keep pumping me full mm-hmm. of painkillers. And I just feel like, I know that it, I, don't, I don't know one one millionth of what Tiger has to deal with on a daily basis, mm-hmm. so I'm not trying to say that he's letting me down because he's not, but I just think that he'd be a perfect person to take the stand against it yeah. and make an immediate powerful impact going forward because yeah. he's got that kind of gravitas to him. I agree with you. And, and, you know, when you see the reports yesterday that the sheriff is, or the police chief is wanting to look at this black box, you've got to have some kind of probable cause uh, from what I understand with the law to be able to even get access to that box, but yet he, they're not going to take his blood. It feels like there's more to the story, but you know, so many people, you know, and I think, you saw the outpouring from mm-hmm. uh, celebrities and others that you know that knew him cheering him on. It sounds like his life has changed. Mm-hmm. He is a whatever a better person is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so subjective, but you know, um, it will be interesting to see what you know what comes out. And and uh, we worked early on with a company at Elevation uh, when they had five employees. They were using data and analytics to sort of. Uh, address the opioid epidemic. So this would have been like, you know, 2015. Mm-hmm. That was on the forefront for whatever, because we had a ton of people dying. And if you look at certain, I think there were communities in Kentucky and maybe um, Ohio that had like these large, I mean, yeah. it was just getting into these communities and killing people, you know, and then you know, I think the, the last administration put some things, you know, in motion, but you haven't heard, you know, I think the pandemic sort of muted, oh, yeah, muted a lot of the opioid talk, but I did hear, what did I hear? That during the pandemic, like the use of meth, like was skyrocketing. And there are reasons behind that I can't remember. Um, I think that's an opioid, opioid isn't it? Um, I, I it may don't, not be. I don't know that to be certain because the amphetamine seems like. Okay, that may not be. Uh, but anyway, we, we're not hearing about the opioid. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're not hearing about crystal meth. We're not hearing about anything. No. Everything's gotten like squished down and yeah. it's, it's pandemic or bust. And, and it's almost like, well, people need something during this time, so maybe we'll just 
I don't address it later. I, mean, I don't want to make light of it at all, but because it's still there. Oh yeah, um, and for it sure. may take something like what what's happened here with with Tiger, Tiger to bring it bring it back up. If in in fact yeah. there is an issue there, I hope there's not. Yeah, but, no yeah. What did Tiger Woods mean to you in your golf? Was he the biggest oh, influence man. or no? Um, that's a great question. You know, I I remember you know junior high school and in those like you know like Fred Couples and Ballesteros and mm-hmm. Nicholas still still playing competitively and Mark Kalkovecchia and you know all those guys and Greg Norman Greg Norman they, 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 you know they're in the like the late 80s into the what mid 90s I mean that mm-hmm. there was kind of a, a group there that was really doing some a lot know, of international yeah. players too as well strange yeah um Jose like, Maria Olathabal and Ian you know, Woosnam and Bernard Woosnam. Longer. I mean, and all yeah, that, I, I, that felt like a. And that, of course, that's when I was growing up. I was playing competitively as a, uh, as a high schooler and all that. But you know, when Tiger came on the scene, because he and I were, we're all the same, same age. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've never seen someone dominate a sport like, like that. Like, like that, and so like I wanted to watch him. You know, and. Um, Went with Daniel Green to the 2000 PGA Championship at Valhalla. Valhalla. Probably the greatest golf tournament ever. <laughs> it was Jack Nicholas's last US, uh, PGA. PGA. Yep. We were on 18. I was able to see Jack play his last hole, uh, PGA. He was playing with Tiger too, right? I think so, yep. And yeah. then I was on 18 on Sunday. Didn't Tiger make a putt to get into the playoffs? To get into the playoffs. So I, I stood on, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm shorter. Daniel's taller. I either got on Daniel's shoulders or stood on something and got to see him, you know, make you know make that putt. And uh, we didn't. I guess the playoff was the next day. No, it was, it was that, eight, right after. Was it right it was after? Four, it was a three hole tournament. So after that, um, Bob May. I don't. I guess we didn't stay. But uh, yeah, I mean, Tiger in what in how he could shape shots and just the 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 you know. He brought a different energy to the game no in a way where you know um, it, it became less like quiet, please, with the with the signs and more, you know, raucous mm-hmm. and, and and high energy. Oh, and yeah. uh, I mean, you look at everybody that's playing now that's competitive. Uh, none of them would play the way they play if it wasn't for Tiger. Tiger. No Nobody, you it. can see it. They even to the way their physique is, because oh, yeah. you think about like. Craig Stadler and Quebec, <laughs> I mean, all these guys, you know, yeah. the, and, and daily, you know, Tim Heron, yeah, yeah. I mean, just Tim, that's right. <laughs> you know, and and no more. I mean, these guys are like in the gym, and now they're animals. They're animal. big, hitting big, it, just you know, it. you know. Here I am, 140 pounds, five eight <laughs> on a good day with boots on, you know, hitting it. I don't know, 270, feeling good about that. Yeah, but it's so funny, like <laughs> Tiger. I don't think I've said. I don't think anybody's ever dominated their sport like Tiger dominated his sport. I think I know the Babe Ruth's numbers were yeah. staggering compared to everybody else in Major League Baseball in his his era, and I'm sure that Wilt Chamberlain has a, a, yeah. a mantle to hold there, and Pele was probably yeah. spectacular. But like to not only do it like he did it, but he did it for like ten and a half years. Yeah, just the, sustain, the sustainability of that long you know, of, of dominance and his. Playing partners, his fellow PGA, they were scared of him. Oh, yeah. There was a time there, and you remember this, where if, if Tiger started to 
You know, a lot of times he was in the lead and never gave it up. That's right. But if he was behind and started to make his Saturday moving day or whatever on Sunday, you saw other professional golfers that were more than capable of winning that tournament. Crumble. Crumble. (laughs) Crumble. And the part of me is like, yeah, I just love that. I mean, I don't know if it's competitiveness or just, you you just, you love, I don't know why we love watching someone just take it absolutely over. Yeah, you know, like Jordan would do on the yeah, on the court. It's so true. I think we're just mesmerized by a level of brilliance. Yeah, that we always wish. And th- so many ways, everybody has a level of brilliance in them. It's just that some arenas are packed full of people, and others are only have six yeah. or seven people watching. But we all feel like we have something like that in us, and it's really it stokes the inner fire. Even if it doesn't actually get you to do it, it makes you give just a little bit of hope that. If you put your mind to something, you could have something similar to that. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think people look towards the great, uh, the people that we put up on mantles are usually the stars that either provide us a level of entertainment right. through music, theater, you know, acting or sport, Yeah, generally speaking. Yeah, that's right. Because they it entertains us. Mm-hmm. And, and in some ways, life... We work a lot, and life is not as easy as it appears out there, 14-year-olds. It's not as easy as it looks. And to experience a, a, a level of dominance, knowing the struggle that he had to go through to get to where he is, right. it, really helps us, uh, it really helps us like dream bigger. Absolutely. You know, it, it, that's a great point. You know, and I was going to ask you, will we see... In golf, maybe because mm-hmm. you and I know the sport the best, another player in our lifetime. It's hard to answer. Be as dominant. <laughs> it really you is. Know, because it's a packed field of little tigers now, right? Like mm-hmm. to my point, what I was saying earlier about just their physique and the way they play. And um, you know, there's a little kid. You know. Yeah. You know. What well, almost always watching. comes down to it comes down to like we look at the people who we consider the greatest ever. You know, so Bobby Jones is probably yeah. the first greatest ever. Mm-hmm. And then do we throw Walter Travis in there? I'm not quite sure we do. And then, like, do we throw Ben Hogan in there? Maybe, maybe not. Do we throw Byron Nelson in there? Uh, maybe not. And then you have to get to Jack Nicholas. Well, mm-hmm. now we're – but do we skip Arnold Palmer? Where's Arnold Palmer right. fit in? You know, I think the truly great, like the greatest of the great – I think it's Bobby Jones, Jack Nicholas, and Tiger Woods right now. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean every fifty years? Mm. No, because it was like a nineteen eighteen ish for Bobby Jones. Nineteen sixty three, Jack Nicholas. Nineteen ninety seven, maybe every forty, maybe every forty years. Mm-hmm. You like, thought about this? I could tell. Because well, I, I, I've, I've <laughs> spent, awesome. I've done a lot of interviews with Peter Kessler, and Peter Kessler was the the voice of golf for the for the longest time, the beginning of the Golf Channel. Yeah, and he's, in my opinion, he may be struggling, or he may not be struggling uh, with life at this particular point. But there's nobody that was more of a historian of the game than mm-hmm. Peter Kessler, and he broke it down. He said, "There's there's generational players. I think it's every forty years. Actually, I think he said that he went with." Bobby Jones, Jack Nicholas, and Tiger Woods, and they're each 40 years apart. And each 10 years, there's that one person we think is going to be the next yeah. so-and-so until we no longer say the next so-and-so. He is the. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was there was like the Bobby Jones, and then it was like the Walter Travis, and then there was the, the Ben Hogan, mm-hmm. Sam Snead, 
right. Byron Nelson era. Are they going to be the next Bobby Jones? And then Jack Nicholas shows up. Oh, he he takes down those three. Yeah. The end of Hogan and Sneed's era. Palmer in his prime. Weisskopf in his prime. Watson in his prime. Choose them all up. Yeah. You know, he's like, well, then we can't really throw them in. Nicholas dominated the back end of theirs and the beginning of these guys. And his longevity is insane. And then there's, then we have like the Watson, Faldo, Norman, Ballesteros era. Yeah. But we can't really put them on the transformational super golfer. Mm-hmm. And then comes Tiger Woods. Mm-hmm. So 40 years from then is 2037. So, yeah, we'll probably see. But what's it going to be? <laughs> you know, it's always the longest player. The yeah. longest, straightest player who yeah. happens to be a great putter. Right. So we, there's been a lot. The, the next Tigers have been Rory, Jordan Spieth. Yeah. I always tell people all the time, do you think it's going to be Rory or Jordan Spieth that takes over Tigers? Man, I said, if they were both able to play together so that Rory could hit all the long shots and Jordan could putt, that was Tiger Woods. Yeah. Two people. Two people were Tiger Woods. <laughs> it's going to be somebody who does something so much better than everybody else that it's staggering. Yeah. Could it be Bryson DeChambeau if he gets it to the point where he's hitting it 400 and straight? Because mm-hmm. it's remarkable. He hit it like 60 yards longer last year, and he hit it straight, hit more, more fairways than he did when he was hitting it 60 yards shorter. That's insane. I saw his physique when he won the NCAA championship. And and now and <laughs> it looks like he ate that kid for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that last week. Um, what do you so think fun. about Dustin Johnson? You watch, you know, you Yeah, super. Uh, He's the best player in the world right now. Yeah. And almost robotic, you know, in yeah. a way. But yeah, uh, I'm not a huge you know, a fan like I am of, of but to watch, watch what he did at the Masters and we needed that Masters so bad for golfers. Oh yeah. And I think for sports lovers. We yeah. needed that. And I don't know about you, but it felt great watching it in November. Yeah. It was now, great. It was great for me because that's when I played. So uh, it res- it resembled. I mean it was yeah. like it was exactly one week after I played it. So you get that stickiness in the grass. Like they were hitting shots we won't see anymore. Right. Yeah. They were hitting shots in the nine green on the pins yeah. in the back. Look yeah. literally there's no place to land it. And they were flying six irons off a downhill lie that was like <laughs> and stopping. I'm like, Yeah, <laughs> enjoy that while you got it. Because I mean, we I, have that coming up next month. I know it's, it you know two I, in six months. But to see him win that is and, and the way he did it, and uh, you know, I think he's like the best order, if you will. Or I don't think that's his jam. You know, no, but I think he's getting better at it. Yeah, but I know? think what his real gift is, he has no memory for failure. It yeah. just like he's very quick to like dismiss failure. Yeah, and it's a and he's huge had, gift. And he's had it. <laughs> oh my goodness, a ton. Yeah. But he's like, you know, he literally, he misses that putt to tie. Yeah. Well, he misses the, the putt to beat Jordan Spieth at the US Open. Then he misses the putt to tie Jordan Spieth. And he's like, yeah. And like the next the next hour, he's in an interview and he's like, how does it feel? He's like, why would I want to remember something that, that hurts? I'm, I'm over it. Let's yeah. just go to the next. And like, that's a gift. Because Absolutely. the over-emotionalization of traumatic experiences scar every human. Yep. And he has this bizarre gift of, eh, oh well, and just moves on. It serves him well, doesn't it? It does, really. And there's something to be learned. Like, it's not, I wouldn't say it's a great trait to be aloof enough that it, nothing ever bothers you, mm-hmm. but it's also, it's a great gift to be able to forgive yourself, Ex- take ownership of what it is that mm-hmm. that's happened, mm-hmm. but like to not, I'm very guilty of 
jumping off the top rope onto myself <laughs> with a flying elbow and pounding on myself unmercifully. Absolutely. When I make a mistake, that's yep. a firstborn issue. Uh, <laughs> well, of, that's me too. You know, it's so frustrating because like I'm my own <laughs> work. Like nobody has to talk negatively about me because I'm over here bashing myself at a level that's unprecedented. Yeah. Um, but I, of all the things I try to take from him, because there's, he has plenty of strengths. His game is unbelievably strong. Mm-hmm. He's got strengths and weaknesses as a person, don't we all? What do I try to do? I try to put something that he's so great at and just pinch a little bit off of him and put it in my front mm-hmm. pocket. Mm-hmm. And that is his ability to f- forget quickly the bad mm-hmm. and focus on the positives and focus on his process to get better from what he just messed up. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's something I really like to put into my life. He's a, he's yeah. a great example. He's worked on his game so hard, but he got he now has it so simple. You know how it is when you're when you're really yeah. excellent at something. Mm-hmm. You get to a certain point and to everybody else it looks so radically complicated mm-hmm. that you got to this particular mm-hmm. level of excellence and for him it is like 1 plus 1 equals 2. Mm-hmm. You know that's something I'm remembering I think that struck me was I think he got a little emotional when he won the Masters. Now maybe not remembering the strike, but I think he said something about you know I've I've worked so hard and to me just looking at at him he's not one that looks like he has to work that hard yeah. you look at his physique and he's got a talent but he's working hard mm-hmm. just like a lot of those top guys they're doing things that we probably don't even like right. we probably know but that i have no idea yeah. and i've seen things like this is tiger's average day you know here's what he does and it's like and i don't even know if that's real or not but if it is it's like uh that's dedication oh, and that's yeah. things he was doing like now yeah after he's done already what he's done. Yep. What an incredible determination. You know. Yeah, another thing that I find fascinating, I'm going to get your take on this, is the level of sacrifice you have to have to be a superstar at anything. And where would you have drawn the line for you where it would no longer be worth it? Where would it be no longer worth it to you? And the, to the example, Rory McIlroy said he played golf with Tiger, and they had a great time. And he said, man, why don't, we, why don't you get your, your girlfriend, I'll meet my, myself and Eric, and we'll go out to dinner. And he goes, man, Rory, I can't do that. He goes, no, man, come on, we'll go out. And he goes, no, I don't mean that I don't want to do that. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. And Rory's like, if I have the choice between being the guy who wins six majors and 35 golf tournaments, or I can be the known as the greatest golfer that's ever lived and win all these majors and all these tournaments, but I can't go out to eat with my friends, I'll choose being the Rory McIlroy that I am because (laughs) I cannot imagine being in a situation where I get done playing golf and I can't go eat with my best friend because I'm so popular. It's a nightmare to go. Mm -hmm. I'm like, wow. That's a great story. I had not heard that before. That is so compelling. Like my, I don't know. I don't know if I could cope with, not being able to be out. Now, he's an introvert, so that he's not Arnold Palmer. So Arnold Palmer thrived in that world mm-hmm. because he's extroverted. I mean, he fit in mm-hmm. with the people. But Tiger's a little bit quirky and, and introverted, mm-hmm. so he kind of doesn't like it. He, I guess he probably doesn't like knowing that he's introverted, and he doesn't like to put himself in a position where he knows he's going to have to be an extrovert to survive that moment. And his his limited amount of privacy time is so important to him that the idea of going out for a meal mm-hmm. when he can just hire a chef and have somebody cook it for him mm-hmm. right at his house mm-hmm. doesn't appeal to him. Where would you where would you draw the line? I mean, I've seen things about like Michael Jordan, how many shots he took a day, and all that. I mean, it, it takes 
tremendous sacrifice in it at some costs. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, I would draw the line if it started to affect my mental health. I would draw the line if, um, you know, life's not fun, but if it stopped being fun yeah. and I lost the passion for it, even though I was really good at it, mm-hmm. you know, I think that would take it too far. If it, um, you know, now that I'm a dad and a husband and, you know, a husband and dad of three, and I mean, if it, you know, if I had to sacrifice so much that I lost yeah. those things that were the most dear to me that, you know, you just don't say, oh, give me a wife and give me three kids. You know I mean? Those, these are things that you work at that, you know, that are the most precious things. Mm-hmm. I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. And I think going back to, you know, the band and what ultimately led us to sort of start to slow down a little bit, the, the other three guys were married a little earlier than, than I was. And so here I am, this single guy. I didn't get married to Rachel until I was 30 and she was 27. Mm-hmm. You know, I still wanted to play clubs and rehearse all the time. I mean, I had it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, let's go every night. Let's mm-hmm. do this. And I was hearing from them, no, we can't, can't do this tonight. And they started having children. Mm-hmm. We really can't do this. You know, and so it maybe almost respects them even more to this day. And maybe while we're still as close as we are, I mean, these are some great, they're great men yeah. that decided what that, was important. What, yeah. And, you know, it doesn't mean music's not important. Just not number one. Yeah. And it's, it's seasons of life and, mm. you know, that's, that's the way it is. And, you know, I'm not completely at peace with that yet, <laughs> but, but I'm, at, I'm more at peace with it yeah. than I've ever, ever been before because I, I do miss, I miss music. Yeah. A lot. It's got to. Well, we'd be remiss to think that all of the cool things that we've just talked about, we just talked about a lot of yeah. amazing and cool things about the, your life. We'd be remiss to think that it's been a straight shot of ease. No. And what I hear from the feedback from my podcast, the most, one of the most important parts is this piece on perseverance in which we, I asked you a question like, what have you persevered through that while you were going through it, you had no idea that you could make it through it but when you did it steeled your resolve that you were able to, you knew that you could take on any particular challenge and come out the other side yeah so you know we had the phone call and you told me about this question this is like the one question i thought a little a little bit about rachel may have touched on this as well i don't know and i haven't asked her um i'm gonna listen to it mm. fresh yeah you know uh, the her podcast um uh, Rachel and I've had a, a really interesting road from from her health perspective, and she may have talked about that on the podcast. She had, was diagnosed with breast cancer six months after we were married, 27 years old, threw the kitchen sink at her in terms of chemotherapy, double mastectomy. You know, the oncologist told us, don't even think about children, so we didn't. We set our world in motion, built our house in Nashville, bought our apartment in France without kids in mind ever because the oncologist told us not to do it, mm-hmm. to think even think about it. You know, that Rachel's health was the number one, and by the time she got out of it, we, she might not even have the ability, ability to have yeah. kids. So we go to one of her last oncologist appointments, and she had this shot she took once a month for like six years and that kept her, you know, her female, you know, the ability to make babies at bay. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, so... They stopped taking the shot, and her body kind of turned back on, which was a little bit of a surprise because some women at her age, they, they don't, and turn oh. back on in terms of being fertile and being yeah. able to have a child. And this oncologist who replaced the original oncologist we had because he retired and we loved him dearly, this guy said, well, you ought, to, you ought to start thinking about a family. And Rachel and I said, what? 
And he was like, yeah, everything's looking good. So long story short, we went through some fertility stuff at Nashville Fertility, which we really didn't even need to do. Um, we, you know, we just had to sort of, in our minds, come to the terms of like, oh my gosh, maybe we're going to be parents because we always wanted to, but yeah. we had to focus on Rachel first. So um, before we moved to France, Rachel had a, a miscarriage pretty early on, and that that was hard for both of us because sure. there was some physical pain associated with it mm-hmm. that Rachel had, and I, it, it almost stopped us from going to France, but we ultimately decided that that wasn't going to stop us. Went to France, weren't there that long, and she got pregnant again, um, which we were really you know, excited about. And um, she went about 20 weeks, which is well outside of the, you know, the first trimester, which is the, you know, the scary part. Mm-hmm. And we had an ultrasound one day at the French doctor who was great. And he saw something with the little, he was a boy. Uh, his name was Eden. Mm-hmm. We named him already. With his bladder, it wasn't working right. So he sent us to a specialist at the, at the children's hospital there in Nice, which is well regarded. And we met with a highly regarded um, doctor there. And she performed a procedure to try to look at some of the amniotic fluid to see about kidney development and made a mistake, we think, that ultimately took the little child's life. And, um, man, that was a dark, dark time for both me and Rachel. Not being home. Yeah. All by yourself, yeah. Being by ourselves, having... You know, some support system with some friends we met over there, but nothing like nothing what, what your family would would provide for you. And I'm telling you, her strength, and she probably wouldn't even say this, is what helped me. Um, but I know inside she was crumbling, mm-hmm. and I was as well. Sure. But we we're the kind of people that just buckle down, and you know. Um, don't erase it from memory. Yeah, you know, but but you know, pick yourself up. Yeah, get after and it. get going. Yeah. But um, you know, we when we got home, so we stayed in in France. You know, until our consultancy assignment was up, and um, yes, just tried to try to block it. You know, um, but I know I was living with it. Mm-hmm. It was on my shoulders every day. And we got sure. home and shortly after I got pregnant with Landon. Who's our six-year-old yeah. today, and then Will, and then June. That's so great. <laughs> and um, on, I guess, the first anniversary of, of Eden, you know, you know, the miscarriage or whatever, or it's not really a miscarriage. I think the the procedure. Yeah. I bought Rachel this tree. This was in October um, that he that 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 happened. Um, the tree turns red in October around the time or this bush oh, around the time yeah. of that and Rachel has put it kind of outside our bedroom window and I know she's done it for a reason because she watches that tree and we love that tree and it feels like his presence is there oh, that's beautiful. you know with us but um, that was hard Absolutely. And, and that is not a story that's unique uh-huh. to us there are so many uh-huh. people out there. and that's something else to talk about behavioral health that people don't want to talk about you know but you're starting to hear more people talk about that because it's very common to oh, have yeah. Miscarriages, I mean, making a, a human being is not an easy thing and to do. And to watch the miracle, the, woman, of, the, the miracle, miracle of life, life is really a oh, freaking miracle. You've seen it. And just it's unbelievable. Incredible. But, you know, really we will never forget about Eden. And our kids know about Eden. Mm-hmm. We talk about him. But, you know, maybe we'll see him again one day. I don't I'm know. Sure but that will. that was a, that, that, uh, that really challenged both of us oh, to say, sure. what do we want? Do we just want to shut down? Mm-hmm. We just want to shut down. We decided that's not who we that's not who we were, and um, 
love the courage. Thank the you. vulnerability and the courage. It's a weird dichotomy that they both come together. Wouldn't have thought that they'd both come together, no. but they do. Um, as we shift to the second part of the program, which is what it is that you do to recharge your batteries, generally speaking, they've always been, well, basically everything you've ever done. They are <laughs> going to college, you know, going to concerts, yeah. being, going to the, the big college football games yeah. and, and NFL games. Like yeah. The things that bring a lot of people together, like-minded, fuel people up. It, makes you, it just brings everybody together. What's the greatest concert you've ever been to? Ooh. I wasn't prepared for this one. There's so many. <laughs> oh, Virgil. You're going to love this. And I have to say this. Uh, because of the time it was, I think it was 93 versus album. Oh, yeah. Pearl Jam came to... Murfreesboro, right? Murfreesboro, Murphy Center. They played Dock of the Bay that night. Sure did. Eddie Vedder tore a hole in the stage with his microphone stand... <laughs> I mean, just beat it, just into this. I mean, it was. I mean, it was all the the uh, you know the rage and the grunge era, man. Oh yeah. And King's X opened for them. Oh wow. And they were awesome. Wow. Um, I just remember um, the opening, and he, I didn't know at the time that Eddie Vedder played guitar, but it was you know that song. Oh uh, yeah. What is that? Something in a rearview mirror. A rearview mirror. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. And man, it was just him on his guitar. And I didn't know he played. And I was like, what? Eddie Vedder plays guitar? And the curtain opened up and there Pearl Jim was and they just like went for it. And oh. I'm telling you, here I am, 17. And it's the biggest band in the world. Biggest band in the world. Coming off of 10. Sophomore albums are hard. Oh, yeah. They're killing it. Yeah. That album is great. That's got to be... Just that's, so that's got to be the pinnacle, and I've I could, I've got twenty more that you and I could talk about uh, that have similar feelings, but nothing. Hey, I listened to the soundboard yeah. show though, like that. Oh, did you really? Yeah, man, that Dock of the Bay was so good. Yeah, it was good. Did he bring out? No, Otis Reddy did not. Okay. I mean, he mentioned well, it. Oh, he mentioned it. <laughs> okay, I remember something. You know, that was. But really he good. was climbing all over the you know the scaffolding and what you remember that was. Back in the, no. what was the the video where he jumped off the or hung on the even flow? Yeah, I mean yeah. the plumbing pipes or whatever they were in that club. <laughs> um, oh, I will say one more. Um, I went to see this guy named Mike Watt <clears throat> at three twenty eight Performance oh, Hall yeah. in the nineties, and I'd gotten a tip that like either some members of the Beastie Boys were going to be there or something, but um, this band comes out and opens up. And it's Dave Grohl. I'm like, what is this? It was the Foo Fighters. No. Like, right? It may have been one of their first right out, early concerts. Right out after Cobain died. Yes. Wow. And, you know, Pat Smear was there, and he had a Taylor on the drums. And, how how um, about that? I think the bass player, original bass player, I don't think that the guitarist wasn't there, but Pat Smear was the only guitarist that night, and Dave Grohl, obviously. But I was like, what is this? I don't know. If, did, you went to 328. You saw Tool mm -hmm. there, didn't you? I mean, small venue, you know. Loud. Loud, God. concrete everywhere. It was so awesome. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm going on. on. But anyway, so Mike Watt was the, was the headliner. Well, he comes out. He's like a bass player from Seattle. And you look over, and who's on guitar? Eddie, Eddie Vedder. Vedder. 
Man, it was awesome. And was, Rachel was there that night. We did. We have oh, talked about this. So we didn't crazy. know each other, right? Because wow. she went to USN. I went to Good Pasture. We were at so many things together, together. but never met each other. That is so <laughs> crazy. That is so great. Because I, I just listened to a great article, uh, our interview with Eddie, yeah. that he was coming off of um, the tour with on Versus. He was so exhausted yeah. from being so famous, and he just wanted to be a normal human being again. So he wanted to play guitar for Mike Watt and just do this thing. So he would play. Did he play? Did he play with his back to the to the stage? He did not. But he stood back and didn't have a lot of lighting on him. He was behind, but you could see him. Mm-hmm. But he never came to the front or made himself like. Here I am. Yeah. I'm Eddie Vedder. It's, he, he, at the end, uh, people started figuring out. He started to play with his back to the. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And it got to the point where it got so uncomfortable that he he felt bad for Mike because yeah. it was, you know, he's just there to, to play guitar. And next thing you know, it's people going ballistic because yeah. Eddie Vedder's. Yeah. Must be. Man, uh, you've taken me way back on that one. <laughs> I can so just cool. remember that. Remember uh, that night so vividly. So greatest sporting event you've ever watched in person? Oh, easy. Um, well, <laughs> uh, the Music City Miracle. Mm. We were there. We were on the 50-yard line, but in the, in the 300 section. Daniel, and I, Daniel Green and I found some tickets on the, on the street that day. Gray, cold. Daniel goes at the end of the game. He thought we'd lost. He goes, let's go. I was like, oh, man, let's just, let's just watch the kick. And famous last words. <laughs> the rest is history. Yeah, I was asked so that great. at a CEO dinner through the healthcare council a couple of years ago and I said that. I mean everybody around the table was just like, Oh I mean that that that's that's a that's a pretty pinnacle. Oh, uh, yeah. sort of I, I remember the breakdown of the pass <laughs> that Wycheck threw. Yeah, I mean it's. I mean it was close. Too. Oh man, it was close, it was, and it was reviewed that day, oh, so there was a lot of silence, and everybody was just kind of talking, you know, because we had gone nuts. Oh, and then everybody was like sitting there. It's gonna take us away. Yeah, oh, and then we went man. nuts again. I, mean, was, oh, I, I so don't good. ever remember like being as excited. I I remember you know. <laughs> When UT beat, or when Vanderbilt beat UT in Memorial Gym after UT had beaten Memphis the Saturday before to, to, to get the number one spot in the country, Bruce Pearl was coaching. They'd had the number one spot Sunday, Monday, maybe. This was a Tuesday night ESPN game, and Vanderbilt upset them in Memorial. I want Memorial Madness to come so back, bad. and I know Drew Madness does, does too. too. I saw a LinkedIn post this week. I think it will. It's just those years, oh my gosh, were they were they great. So um, and then, you know, to be able to watch Ron Mercer and Drew, you know, and my, some of my classmates in high school mm. on the basketball court, at, you know, in t- tiny gyms to watch that level of talent, at, at, that was something. And I know there are people all around that mm-hmm. had people in their community that went on to play great college in, in NBA that got to see an elite athlete that close. But mm-hmm. Drew also put something on LinkedIn this week of Ron um, just dissecting a defense and going oh, yeah. straight to the hoop. We got to see that week in and week, week out. out. And I traveled because I dated one of the cheerleaders to every game. Oh, so good. Home and away. We went to the most potent places and he just, it was great. That's one of the greatest high school basketball teams of all time. Because not only did they have it, Sam Howard, too. Sam Howard. Yeah, absolutely. Well, but then we go to, you know, we play BGA my senior year. Gary, Coach Gary Smith, <laughs> oh, OHCC member. I love yeah. Gary. And they find a way, he finds a way to outcoach Coach Reese and that team with Drew and Ron but and he Sam. Talks, and, that one, his perseverance piece, that's what Drew talked about. Ooh. He goes, but that crushed me. 
Oh, I've, I heard stories in the locker room. It was a lot of tears, yeah. and there were a lot of tears in the in in yeah. the, the bench on the on the in the stands too. For sure. It was tough. I remember that. That yeah. was at the Murphy Center. Yeah, that's <laughs> of right. All places. Of all places. <laughs> that's that, so little funny. did I know that years later <laughs> I was going to see the best band in the world oh, in that that's place. So good. That's so good. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Now we start to head into my real favorite part, which is the wine piece. <laughs> <laughs> I should have brought a bottle today to open oh, up. For this but thing. man, so when we were talking, I was talking with Rachel, and she was so she so much loves Chateauneuf de Pop, and we were talking yep. about the the one evening that we had at our mm-hmm. at our house, and I'm like, you know, what's night. so fascinating is like. I remember both of you simultaneously. <laughs> Brian takes the silver oak. He's like, oh my God, what is this? And you take the Chateau Raya, Chateau Neuf de Pop, and you're like, oh my God, what is this? And it turned into one of the greatest nights of all time. And wine just has this Man. bizarre way of elevating a room. Because it's a weird artwork that fits so perfectly with food and people. Very well said. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's magical. What are your favorite wines? What regions do you love the most? <laughs> Oh man, um, so, so I love the Bandol region in France. I got to go there when we lived there. It is everything that you or any of your mm. reader, your listeners would would think that it is. It's all the what the Peter Mail books describe. Um, you know, there are vineyards everywhere. You can walk amongst the vines. Oh, how cool um, is that? The wine. You know, is is so good. Any of them in, from the Bandol region that I've had has have been, you know, fantastic. Um, a lot of Mavedri. Yeah, the, that's right. Yeah, the Tempiers. Yeah, the, that domain Tempiers yeah. is very very popular yeah, that, here I, in Nashville. And I love that. Yeah, that vin, that vineyard or chateau. Um, Rachel bought me a bottle of that on one occasion that I really enjoyed. And one of my colleagues mm-hmm. learned from her that I liked, you know, <laughs> uh, that uh, Chateau as well and, and, and bought that. But Bandol, there, um, there's a small AOC outside of Nice um, that it's the smallest one in all of France. And there's uh-huh. a, there's a Chateau at the top of the hill called Chateau de Cremant that nobody would know about. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they're making some really uh, neat things. Um, Rachel and I are going to Italy uh, this fall, and she may have talked about this. Some Sicilian wines are starting mm-hmm. to really Sicilian wines so good come out. And there's uh, one. Italy has so many different great oh, varietals that people don't even know about that I just love. I love Italian wine is sneaking up. It's absolutely. It, I'm a huge Bordeaux guy, as you know. Yep. Love Bordeaux, and I do love Napa, but I love. A lot of Italian wines. One, because it goes so well with food. It's got that nice acidity to cut through sauces and meats, et cetera. But yeah. it's so versatile. I love Italian wine. God. And I can't wait. We talked about, we did some We did some deep diving in on like I'm sure you did. Sorrento well, and look, she, Tuscany like, and all She this. is so much more studied than I am. Like, you know, and, and you, you even take it to a different level. But I think you and her could do a podcast that's probably a six hour long. where you all dissect it she studies it like it's a religion and i know that you do and i've learned from her just by her studies and her bringing we've been buying quite a bit of california wines over the past few years and they're doing some really you know great stuff those cabs are so rich they're Mm. almost like syrup sometimes they're so rich and so soft on the palate too absolutely it's almost buttery yeah gigantic Um, but like you know, weirdly powerful and soft simultaneously. Yeah, you know, like Schaefer. I mean, they've been there forever, but some of that stuff and, and Myriad and um, oh, there's this small Schaefer. producer called uh, Pot, 
uh, wines, and it's this this man. Uh, he makes something called Chateau Neuf de Pot, and he's <laughs> finally been able to buy some land out in Napa Valley. And he it's, he and his wife and daughters, and they're making some real fun stuff. But um, we were out there several years ago, and, and it sure is the promised land out there in, in America. And, and really, you can tell when you're there if you've lived in France or been to France, in Provence or wherever they're producing wine. You know the, the climate and the sunlight and the way it you know the mistral and all that. I mean, mm-hmm. it, you know, it all is, is similar. You can you can see why you know that, that's become such a great region in our country of mm-hmm. producing some neat wines. You know, also some of the. I like the Willamette Valley, you know, and the Pinot oh, Noirs, yeah, and just yeah. oh my gosh, it just could I go love New Zealand Pinot Noirs too. If you like Willamette Valley, you'll love okay. New Zealand Pinots, and New Zealand makes really fresh, bright, awesome Pinots. I love New Zealand Pinots. We need to drink wine again together. Yes, it's been far too long. <laughs> yes we do. Oh my god, I love it. I love it so much. Got two more questions okay. for you. One of the one of the most impactful things that I've seen recently was a quote from Denzel Washington in which he talks about, generally speaking, you're mostly impacted. Your life is mostly impacted by the five people you spend the most time with. There, And this doesn't have to be all like right now, but who are the five people that made the biggest impact on your life? And if you don't have five, but I mean, this the story, yeah. like the five people that Denzel Washington talked about was yeah. pretty interesting. I mean, my dad. Tommy, the man. Yeah. Kathy Neville. Kathy Neville. I haven't heard from her in a long time. She was great. Rachel. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I think about a lot how different my life would be, like in in terms of like less rich, and I'm not talking about in terms of monetary. Mm -hmm. If I wouldn't have never met her, man, I I would be, and this is nothing nothing wrong. I'd be a corporate HR. Mm -hmm. I'd be a chief human resources officer at some corporation. Doing mm-hmm. my thing, like yeah. my dad, because yeah. I watched him, and that's what he did, and yeah. she changed my life in, in ways that she just kind of nudged me like a you know, like a mama bird, all uh-huh. <laughs> you know, nudges someone you can out, fly. You out, can of, fly. out of the nest. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, hmm. You know, someone like a Daniel Green yeah. that's been, you know. A halt, like a rock for your life means the best oh, friend man. forever. Yeah, and to what you talk about perseverance, mm-hmm. what he saw at a young age that 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 I saw because I was that close to him. Mm-hmm. You know, um, man, we had to grow up really fast. Yeah, and um, I'm looking forward to doing a podcast with him too. He's got a lot of great things. To oh talk man, about. I think yeah, I think he would he would love this setting and yeah, I mean it's a lot a lot of depth there. Um, and there, there are more. I oh, mean, yeah. um, the the band. Sure. The the guys in the band. There's that's more than five. Yeah, but, that's all right. Um, just the older I get, and we're getting there. <laughs> the hourglass hole's getting bigger. Oh, you know, it is, man. It, it just you you really do take a step back and go, man. Who are the people in my life that have made me who I am? Yeah. You know, and because it ain't me that made me. Yeah. You know, there's there's a part of that, but some of these people have invested in me believed in me been tough on me mm-hmm. been straight with me because you know how i am you know mm-hmm. and you've probably seen how i have changed oh yeah since sure. over the 20 years that we've known each other yeah for sure um you know i'm not the easiest well i wouldn't say that you're not easy because in all actuality you're just you mm-hmm. have you're a principled human being that that stands your ground on what it is that you believe so sometimes 
you know, what you may find as a weakness, I don't really find it as a weakness, is the fact that you have a belief in something and you stand by it and you're not easily moved off your position. Mm -hmm. But if you do get moved off your position, you move in a way that you know. Like, oh, I was wrong. Now I know better. I'm over here now. You know, I don't really look at that as a negative or a weakness. I just look at it as it's somebody who's committed into what it is that matters to them, and they're not going to move off that. So I don't really look at it that way. <laughs> um, last question. You get a chance to play one more round of golf. You get to take three others other than yourself. <laughs> Where are you playing and who are you playing with? Oh, man. I mean, it's got to be Augusta. Tommy's got to be there. It's the hardest inland golf course in the world, man. It's so hard. You know, Dad's played it twice. You played it. You played it <laughs> twice. twice. He shoots seventy nine. One of the times he plays, I'm like, what? For what tees? <laughs> the, the member tees are easier. <laughs> Look, if I'd have shot seventy nine at Augusta, you, you would have had to carry me off the. I could. I would have not even have been able to to break eighty. <laughs> oh my god! No kidding. No kidding. Um, you know, uh, me, Dad, Daniel, probably Dennis. God, you know, what a man? Great I mean, that is the long. Whenever we and we do this once or twice a year, we get we get the sons and the dads, That's and there just isn't anything better. And I think we could go play anywhere around this world. And yeah, I mean, you can play. You time. can play McCabe or oh, Augusta National, and it'd be just one hundred percent. And, uh, uh, that's, I, those great people right there. I love that. You know, but we got to fulfill a bucket list with with Daniel when he turned forty. Unfortunately, his house you know burned down yeah. weeks before we were supposed to go to Pebble, and then we did it a year later. Mm-hmm. So we had to be patient. It was me and him, David Schaub, and, and Josh Belleville. We we practiced quite a bit leading oh, up to it. Yeah. All of us aren't as sharp as we used to be. Played a bunch of rounds at Nashville Golf. I kind of got. You know, you get your game back pretty quick, especially oh, yeah. your short game and putting. We went out to Pebble, and we all played a little game with mm-hmm. each other, and we were competitive, all of us. That's the most, that playing that Pebble, and I remember you and, and Bella talking about that when you went on your honeymoon. Didn't mm-hmm. y'all play out there on yeah. your honeymoon? Mm-hmm. I remember when y'all talked about it, and especially Bella, you know, how she can really set the stage with her stories about what it was like. Oh, yeah. I wanted to do that. We, you know, we walked it. We had these great caddies. I will never forget it. And we've been talking about going back. And I want to go back, but a part of me doesn't want to yeah. because that 18 holes was the best ever. Yeah. And you saw my drive I hit on 18 because Daniel took a video and I sent it to you. That's right. So I hit a great drive down the middle. Loved it. Hit a three-wood, fine. And I pushed an eight iron into the bunker right. Uh. Right. <laughs> Hit a bunker shot out, left myself, and Daniel might have to check you on this. It was at least 30 feet. And you know, you got the little condos or whatever mm-hmm. they are there, and there were people on the balconies. It was a nice day. Well, I drain it. Uh. You, know, that, you know, I think of myself like Tom Watson on whatever hole he chips in. And so I started kind of just running. <laughs> and no, there wasn't a lot of people around. It was, I think, October. But, you know, I, I will never, forget that. ever forget that. I would tell you that never probably it wouldn't be a good that. idea to go back. Because it can never live up to that. I don't think it could. Like I did, no I, way. We had a, I played in an Ireland Pro-Am in 03 and 04. And in 03, it's the greatest golf trip I've ever taken. I've never laughed harder in yeah. my life. I think I remember you talking about and I, this. Well, back in 04, we won the tournament in 04. We didn't win it in 03. But it was a letdown because it, you could, we could never match yeah. 
the fun that we had the first, and we could we could feel everybody trying yeah. <laughs> to do it. Yeah, yeah. But it was so off. The first year was so authentic. Anything else is forced. So right. we'd probably be better off to go to a Dutherin golf course. Yeah, I think, I, yeah. And there's plenty to you know, oh, you know bucket list kind of things. But we all played good. I think I shot 81 that day, and I'm not sure I could have played much better and daniel took videos all the way around so we have shots of a lot of the holes never gonna and go away the we'll eighth never holes, forget it the eighth hole i mean i think cypress point's the greatest golf course in the world and it's really literally a stone's throw yeah. away but i think the eighth hole at pebble beach is the greatest hole in the world that little blind yeah. tee shot off oh, the hill yeah. and then the second shot i had so. no idea that was up there and i think the caddies on purpose didn't tell me because or tell us because no. they thought we would do something different. I mean, so I just hit my driver and was feet from the cliff. The cliff. That's so good. <laughs> so, and that was the beginning of the end, right? So like Bella, Bella birdies one, two, three, and seven, and she's Man. four under on the eighth tee. And oh my gosh, I didn't. You know she almost me. She almost made a hole in one on seven. She hit it to like two inches. She hit the oh, flag stick. Man. Hits like six inches from the hole. Hits the flag stick and bounces to like three inches. So she's four under through seven, and I'm four over through seven. And and I just remember, like getting to the eighth, the middle of the eighth fairway. So I hit like four irons. I got like one seventy one, and it's a little downwind. And I'm that green looks like it's about the size of a raisin. <laughs> it sure does. Sitting out there, like I can see it in my mind. I'm like eye. how? F- like I'm supposed to hit the green that small? <laughs> and I literally hit the best seven iron of my life. I flew it right over the flag, like eight feet, and that that changed the the trajectory of my round because I was really. You know, I'm out there at Pebble Beach. You know, it's like you're taking it all in. You're not really yeah, paying it. Right. It's hard. It's hard, you know. And then, but yet you want to compete. Yeah. And you want to play well. And, and, and Bella was a great player. Yeah. Such a great player. Yeah. You know, so she's she's having the round of her entire life. Yeah. yeah. You know, really the biggest issue that she had is that 8, 9, and 10 are radically long, hard yes. par fours. Yep. And she didn't play from the red tees where she probably should have played from yeah. on those holes. So she was playing holes that she couldn't really play yeah and make it feel like it's She's probably a, playing the tee box we were playing from from the white maybe. tee so she played like an eight and nine she couldn't get to yeah so i mean she struggled there but i mean she had it going man it's so fun to watch somebody who can really play yeah when they get going it's a beautiful thing she could drive it down the stinking cart path <laughs> she could drive it so well that good. was one of the great joys you know when i first met her and us going out with bill dinker and the oh, yeah. three of us and then he'd bring some you know customer along or whatever and they had no idea what they were no idea we, you know we had so many fun times her and i and bill and you you know those you just playing and yep. not now, knowing anything different now we have to resurrect the crop ring cup <laughs> yeah we do <laughs> 20, i'm not gonna let that go 2021 i love it well brian thank you so much for sharing your story and uh your amazing life with us and uh, i'm grateful to have you on the verge man thank you so much for doing it. thank you so much for asking me it's been a pleasure thanks virtual my pleasure Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you, or check out their website, www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is produced by Chase Akers. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.